Church, good morning. If, uh, if I have not met you yet, my name is Ross. I can serve here as one of the elders and family pastor. I'm so excited uh, to be with you guys. If you're, you're visiting, you're new uh, with us, we're glad you're here. We hope you feel really warmly welcome. We're, uh, we hope, and we, our, our prayer is that uh, during uh, our time together, this is one, just one local expression of the family of God, of the body of Christ, and our prayer is that as you're checking this out, as you're observing and seeing uh, whether you're visiting from out of town or you're looking for a new church or whether you just walked in here, a friend brought you here and you have no idea why you're, why you're here. Our, our prayer is that in this time, the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit would draw you in to a deeper relationship and enjoyment of Jesus, the risen Savior, who, who died, who lived the life that we could never live and then who died the death that we deserve to die uh, and then was raised again so that all those who simply just put their trust in Jesus, might walk in a new kind of life that Jesus offers, simply by nothing we bring to the table, no merit, no, 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 no work that we can do, but only simply by identifying with and placing our trust in Jesus. That's a gospel that we hope, uh, whether you're here, you've been following Jesus for decades, or this is, you would never consider yourself a Christian in a million years. That's the gospel that we pray, our prayers that you encounter uh, this morning. Uh, and so uh, we're, this morning, we are going to continue, we're going to be wrapping up a sermon series through the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a tiny little book in the Old Testament. We spent the last three weeks really building up to this final uh, passage in the book of Zephaniah. And so we're going to finish, uh, finish today. This is kind of the climactic pinnacle of the entire book. And that's what we get to explore and, and, and enjoy uh, together this morning. Uh, just a heads up of what's coming in the future uh, next week. Uh, we will be starting a new sermon series. We're going to be joined by a special guest, a, a pastor named Clancy Cruz. Uh, no, as far as I know, no affiliation to uh, t- or relation to Tom, either Tom Clancy or Tom Cruz is what I've, uh, what I've been made aware of. But we're excited to have him, have him come, and he'll be with us every Sunday for the, through the month of August. And then Justin, our lead pastor, who's on sabbatical currently, he will return uh, September 1st uh, is when his sabbatical ends. So... He'll be back with us, and that's where we're going for the next few weeks. Uh, we're excited to have kids in the service with us this morning. If you didn't get a sermon note, a kids, a sermon note for kids, you can find them in the, in the entryway. Uh, feel free to go grab them at, at any point. Um, uh, and we're, we're excited to, be, uh, to, to worship and to sit under and sit with the, the teaching of, of Scripture together as a, as a whole family uh, this, uh, this morning. All right, Zephaniah chapter 3. If you have a copy of Scripture, turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse uh, verse 14, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14 through 20. We're going to read the whole passage, the last seven verses of Zephaniah, all together at the beginning, and then we will jump in and, and, um, and, uh, in, into what it has to say for us. So, let me pray for, for our time. Father, by the power of the Spirit, through uh, the Word uh, inspired, uh, the Word that you have inspired, would you change us? Would you conform us into the image of Jesus? Uh, we praise you because you're the God who restores every heart, every soul broken by sin, broken by unmet expectations, broken by, by, the, by, by the sorrow that we have brought onto ourselves and the sorrow that have been, and the shame that has been placed on us by others. You restore. So would you, by the power of your Spirit, through the teaching, through the reading, through the, through the explanation of your word, would you apply the truth of your gospel to our broken, uh, needy souls? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Zephaniah chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. 
The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in His love. He will delight in you with singing. I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be a tribute from you and a reproach on her. Yes, at that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will, make those, uh, I will make those who were disgraced throughout the earth received praise and fame. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at the time, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, the Lord has spoken. Throughout history... Many philosophers, but of all kinds, Christians, secular, pagans, they've all come back to one key insight about humanity and what it means to be a human. And that is that humans are hardwired to pursue happiness. Each one of us sitting in this room is committed to our own happiness. We will naturally do whatever we think will bring us the most happiness. And I say that not, not like as a as a bad thing, that's just what it means innate in who we are to be a human, is to pursue and seek pleasure, happiness, and joy. That's, that's, that's what we do. There's no other way to exist as a human other than that. So you might be thinking, okay, well, I'm sitting right here in church right now, and uh, there are, I would, it would make me happier to be somewhere else. Uh, so that proves, disproves your theory. Well, but nobody forced you to come here, right? And even if you are here at gunpoint, and if, if you are here at gunpoint, just slowly raise your hand. We'll have, we have <laughs> law enforcement officers placed in the room. So, okay, even if you are here only at gunpoint, like, you still had a choice. You, 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 you would rather, it, would, it made you happier to be here than to be shot or dead, right? Right? Or, <laughs> hey, that's, if that's all we got, that's all we got going for it, so that's okay. Uh, or, or you might say, well, I, have a, I hate my job, but I still go to my job even though I hate it. I still go every single day, and I'd much rather do something else, but... Again, nobody forces you go, to go to the job that you hate. You go to the job that you hate because it makes you happier to go to that job than to suffer the consequences of not going to that job, right? You do what you want to do. We always do what we think will make us most happy. We are committed. We are obsessed with. We are devoted to, above all else, your own happiness. That's what it means to be human. The question is, what do you want? I mean, what do you really want? What do you believe will make you truly happy? Where do you believe the joy, the happiness, and the delight that you are naturally seeking, where do you believe that will come from? Now, if you're a Christian or you've been around church culture for a while, you, it's easy for us to believe that uh, the Bible or Christianity doesn't really have much to say about joy, that following Jesus is about duty and obedience and obligation or discipline. It's about saying no to joy. It's about saying no to happiness. It's about saying no to pleasure. Uh, but in reality, the God of the Bible is actually obsessed with joy. He's obsessed with, first and foremost, his own joy. And then secondly, and, and equally as important, he is obsessed with our joy. But even more so than that, the God of Scripture, the God of Bible, is far better at discerning what we really want than we are. 
God's answer to the question, what do you really want, is tremendously greater, far more satisfying, far more delightful and joyous than any of the answers that we come up with. And I think uh, Christians have, have always known this. Christians have always known uh, that at a root, we are the nine-year-old version of myself who used to think that, any, any nine-year-olds in here used to think that strawberry ice cream was like the greatest flavor of ice cream ever? Like, like when you're young, you believe silly things like that, like that strawberry ice cream is great. But when you, become, when you grow up, you realize, no, 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 it's chocolate peanut butter that is actually the greatest flavor of ice cream ever, right? You, 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 you realize like what you think you want isn't actually what you want until you, until you become cool like me. So... <laughs> But Christians, they've always known this, and they've always known that God is committed to joy. And so one of the historic creeds, one of those historic confessions of our, uh, our, of our uh, Christian faith, actually it's a teaching, it's a catechism, was birthed out, it's called the Westminster Catechism, it was birthed out of the, out of the, the Reformation, out of this, this season in the church's history when, uh, when the, the true, deep gospel truths uh, were being rediscovered and reemphasized. And the very opening question of this, Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? That is, what is your ultimate purpose? And what is your reason for being? Why do you exist ultimately? And the the ultimate reason that you exist is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is, your ultimate destiny and purpose is delight, happiness, Joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, and the only greatest source of fulfillment in this universe knows. The creator himself, God. You were created for ridiculous, overwhelming, abounding delight and happiness. And God is committed to it. God is committed to, to his people's joy. And that's really our big idea that we're going to see this morning. Is God is committed to his people's joy. We've been going through the book of, of Zephaniah. We've been seeing what is God committed to for the sake of his people. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of priorities that God has for his people. But as the book of Zephaniah climaxes and ends and reaches this high point, what we see is that God, all of his purposes, all, of, all the, the full direction of where God is sovereignly working from eternity past to eternity future is the joy of his people in himself. So far in Zephaniah, though, we've seen that God's people are at the bottom of a pit. They're in a pit of sin and despair and self-destruction. They are mired in suffering and corruption. We've seen them fall from the great heights of God's covenant with Abraham, and they've kind of spiraled downhill into a toilet bowl. The kingdom is split. The, uh, the Israel first is conquered, the northern half. Then the, then, and, and as Zephaniah is preaching, this is the southern half of the, of the, of the nation is about, to be, uh, is, is about to be destroyed. Uh, But we've also seen that Israel's decline, their toilet bowl decline into despair, is really a picture of each one of us. We look for joy and happiness and satisfaction and delight in all the wrong places, in strawberry ice cream. But God has made us for so much more than this. And he is committed to joy in its fullest and best expression. And this is exactly what we discover at the pinnacle of Zephaniah. God is committed to joy. Look, look with me. This is how he opens this section. Look at verse 14 of, of chapter 3. Now, we just read it, but we'll read it again. He says, Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. This is what God's purposes are ultimately building toward. And one commentator says that this verse, uh, uh, that, he, that Zephaniah uses every available expression of joy 
to describe the happiness that God wants to give his people. So we're going to look at this morning, uh, in this passage, three sources of true joy, three true sources of true joy uh, that God wants for you and wants for his people. All right, so firstly, we see we find joy in God's work for us. We find joy in God's work for us, and specifically his work, what he has done to remove the consequences for our sin. So look at verse, uh, we see two aspects of, of the con- two consequences of sin. Uh, we've, we've seen this repeatedly throughout the, bo- the book of Zephaniah, so just as a reminder, we've seen firstly God has removed our punishment. That's how he opened, that's how, we, as soon as he calls us to joy, he says, verse 15, uh, uh, God has removed our punishment. Look at, so the Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. That is, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they have been defeated. You will no longer suffer the, the wrath of, of war. You, you will no longer uh, suffer. Then verse 19, skip to the end of this section. He says, I will deal with all who oppress you. That is, as a consequence of your sin, you've been dealing with oppressors from within and from without. They're going to be finally dealt with. God's punishment for your sin, the consequences from your sin will be removed. And this is, knowing this, that the, that the punishment for our sin has been removed in, through the work of God, is the first and foundational source of our joy. Think about the weight of debt. Anybody ever felt the weight of debt? I know every time, debt, debt feels like a, tr- a tr- horrendous burden to carry, but every time I've paid off a debt, whether it's... Uh, a, a student loan or a car loan, as soon as you make that last payment, what happens? Just like a tremendous amount of weight flies off of your shoulders. And this is just a minuscule taste of the weight of sin that's removed by Christ. But the beauty of the gospel is that Christ himself paid what we couldn't pay to settle a debt that he didn't owe. And if we want to know true joy, then we need to know that our debt, that the consequence of our sin has been lifted. But then secondly, God has removed our shame. God has removed our shame. This is another thing we've seen throughout, throughout over and over again in, in, in the book of Zephaniah. Uh, look at verse 19 again. Yes, at that time I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. Those in ancient, uh, in, in, in ancient Judah, Judah who were the recipients of tr- dreadful shame in that culture. Next line. I will make those who were disgraced, that is those who were put to shame, Throughout the earth, I will make them to receive praise and fame. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the people of the earth. So in other words, Israel's pride had led them to to do shameful things and to be put to shame by outsiders. But shame has been been removed. And in its place, God looks forward to the time when his people find, instead of shame, find fame and and praise. Now that might sound a little bit odd to you. Like uh, you might think, well, I don't want fame and praise and glory and celebrity. That sounds arrogant, right? We're too, we're too uh, falsely humble in our society to want to want fame and, and praise. Uh, but this promise of of, of glory, of praise, uh, uh, and, and fame isn't just an abstract or foreign thing. It's not just an Old Testament promise. It's actually wrapped up in the gospel itself, the gospel of what Jesus has done itself. So, and Jesus talks about it all the time. Paul talks about it all the time. Receiving, like in the gospel, we receive praise and glory and fame. And so Jesus phrases it as a question in John, in John chapter 5. He's dealing with the, he's talking with the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees? They were uh, Jesus' like chief like, uh, um, theological opponents. He's, he's 
they're haranguing him all the time, and in one conversation he says, he says to them, these, these pride men who care only about the external uh, forms of, of religion, he says, how can you believe if you accept glory from one another? In other words, he's, say, he's saying, you can't believe because you're so consumed by getting glory or praise or fame or affirmation from other people. It's hindering your ability to trust in me. Uh, because you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. So what here Jesus is doing is he's hitting on a key insight into, that's at the foundation of what it means to be a human. And that is that we, are all, we all seek joy through glory and affirmation and praise and fame. And that's, again, it's not a bad thing. That's actually how God made us uh, to live. To, we, we are glory and affirmation and acceptance and approval seekers. We will either seek this from the Pharisees, which, or from, we will either, like the Pharisees, seek this from other people, and that will always only ever lead to shame. Or we will look to it in God, which leads to joy. But the delightful beauty of the gospel is that our shame has been lifted. And Jesus took our shame. Whether the shame we incurred by our own actions or the shame put on us by others, he took it onto himself and lifted it from us. And he did so by becoming shame itself, by dying a shameful death, and then being raised again to a place of inexpressible glory and fame and honor. And now in place of shame, Jesus has the ability to offer you the acceptance and the affirmation and the approval and the glory that you were actually designed for because you have been designed for true glory. So, we find joy. We find the delight that we were meant to, to experience when we know that the consequences of our sin have been erased. So how do you think God views you in light of these two things? Is he a debt collector just waiting for you to miss a payment before he drops the hammer? Is he ashamed of you knowing the shameful things that, you, that you've done? The guilt and the shame that's been produced by your sins, they have been vanquished and totally erased by Jesus. So come, I beg you, come and find the joy that's in his grace. Okay, so we find joy in God's work for us, what he has done for us. Secondly, we find joy in God's presence with us. We find joy in God's presence with us. The times of greatest uh, of joy in our lives are always with other people. I'm an introvert, so I hate being around other people, but I, even I know this is true. That, that I, love, I love being by myself, I, love, I, I can have a lot of fun by myself, just do my own thing, but even I know that the greatest memories, the times of most laughter, the times of most joy, the times of most happiness, they're always shared with other people. We are made to find joy in the presence of others. And then the flip side of that, all the moments of our lives where there's the opposite of joy, that's fear or despair or worry or anxiety, all those like, are dispelled or eased or, 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 or solved by the presence of other people. There's a reason why when my two-year-old son wakes up from having a, a nightmare in the middle of the night, he doesn't want me to just like flick on the lights and logically explain to him why his nightmare isn't real and why there's no monsters under the bed or whatever. Like, he doesn't want logic. He wants to hold my hand. He wants to come get in my bed. He wants me to stay or crawl in his bed. He wants me to be with him because... In the presence of, of fear or anxiety or despair, those things are relieved through the presence of other people. So both our, both our joy is increased in the presence of other people and our fear or anxiety or whatever suffering is alleviated in the presence of other people. 
Look at, verse, look at verse 14, because perhaps most importantly, the gospel tells us that more than, these, more than this, more than this, more than this, these, the, this human reality, uh, there's, a, there's a spiritual reality. The gospel tells us that our greatest joy will be when we're with God. So verse 15, the second half of verse 15 says, he's, uh, why, why should you rejoice? The Lord is among you. You, know, you need no longer fear harm. Then down to 17, the Lord your God is among you. Same phrase, same exact words. A, a warrior who saves. Then skip down to this, the end of the passage, verse 18. I will gather those who have been driven then, uh, uh, and, and bring, so I'm gathering, then, uh, then verse 20, I will bring you back. Yes, at that time I will gather you. So in other words, so, so God, God wants to gather his people. He wants to bring them back. Uh, he, they will no longer be separated. They will return to their land, the land that they've been kicked out of by the Babylonians. They're going to return and they're going to come back to the presence of God himself. Central to Judah's joy would be a restored closeness and intimacy with God. And this is what God has always been, been working to. Adam and Eve were created uh, were created to enjoy frequency and familiarity and, and closeness to their, their God. And then uh, in the, the sermon series through Exodus that we took this last spring, uh, we, we see that this was, that was why God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. Uh, it was to dwell among them, Exodus 29, 45 through 46. I will dwell among the Israelites and they will be my God and they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them, and that's what he did. He dwelled in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And then, uh, but then we find out that actually all the tabernacle and the temple, they were just pointing to an even greater reality. That is, Jesus himself, God, the, took on flesh uh, and, and, and dwelt among us. Same word, tabernacled among us. He, God uh, made his presence manifest through human form in the person of Jesus. But even the person of Jesus was just a taste, was just a pointer to what God is ultimately working for in Revelation 21. When it all, when it all comes to an end, uh, when all of God's purposes are over, this is what we find in Revelation 21, 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That's where we're headed. There will, uh, Revelation 21 says there's actually not even going to be a need for the sun because he himself will light up the whole place. We will enjoy him as he was meant to be enjoyed in his fullness. And, and the crazy, beautiful reality of the gospel is that we can know his presence with us even now. So do you want joy? Do you want wholeness? Do you want real meaning in life? Do you, do you see that that is what you were actually made for? Then you can have that even now by enjoying the presence of God through the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you're like me, you, you forget or ignore God's presence before you even get out of bed in the morning. There are a lot of reasons for this. Like, there's a lot of reasons that we just live as though God were not near. God were absent. God were, like, it's just, the, again, it's a, it's a default of the fall. Like, we just act as though God's not really around. There's a lot of reasons for this. Uh, one in particular that I'll pick on is the screens in our pockets, our phones. I think our phones uh, dull us and they hinder our ability to enjoy God's presence more than most things in the world. Our screens dull us and distract us from the nearness of God, uh, and from, uh, from nearness of God with us in, in countless ways. There are a lot of studies that you're probably aware of or you see it on Facebook or you see it wherever, but like uh, that, that show how our phones make, uh, are, are hurting our ability to connect with others. 
they, they isolate us, they disrupt our communication in marriage, they sour parent-child relationships, they make it harder for us to empathize with others, our phones make, it harder, uh, make us feel lonely, they make it harder for us to show affection in human-to-human relationships. But all of these can be, can be said, all these negative effects of phones can, can be equally applied to our relationship with and enjoyment of God. So, and if you're, you're a, a, a kid in the room, like, like having a phone is like a, a symbol of, of, of some kind of status or it's a, a, it's a sign of delight, like we, I get to watch the show that I want to, or I, wanna, I get to play, like, but if, don't, like if you're under 18, don't fall for the dumb trap that my generation and that your parents' generation have fell for over and over and over again to bring on ourselves anxiety and loneliness and despair and suffering because we're so addicted to, the, to our phones. Like, be smarter than us. Don't fall for the same mistake uh, that we fell. Don't, don't worship the same idol that we've fallen for. Okay, now, if you're a kid that probably went over your head, it'll come back. It'll come back to you at, at some point. But, but please, like... Uh, because, because that's what phones do. They, they decrease our joy. Um, uh, so, but, so, one, one simple practice, one simple thing to recommend. Before, each morning, when you wake up, before you look at any screen, look at God. Before you connect to any advice, intentionally set apart time to connect with the Lord. Uh, and maybe that means, like, uh, it means a couple of things. Maybe it means not using your phone as your alarm clock. Maybe it means not using your, your phone to read the Bible. But just, so here's how, how it could look. You wake up in the morning, each morning, you pour yourself a quick cup of coffee, you sit down on the couch, you, you take one minute, not even a minute, don't even put a timer on it. Just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a, a, a one short, unhurried prayer. Short, but not hurried. Short, unhurried prayer to God. First thing, whatever comes out of your mind. Like, God, I'm tired. I'm trying this. Uh, and then... Um, and then this next thing you do is you open up your scripture, whatever, you know, find a psalm or find a passage in the life of Jesus. You spend one to two minutes, whatever you can read in a couple minutes, read. Slowly, unhurriedly, just read it. And then you close your Bible and you spend one to two minutes or whatever. Again, the time doesn't matter, just, uh, just as ballpark. Just reminding yourself that you are in the presence of God. That God is with you, that he knows you that he knows, uh, knows your anxieties about the coming day, that he knows what you're excited for about the coming day. He knows the, the things that have hurt you yesterday uh, and the things that you're still stressed out about from yesterday, the ways that you have fallen uh, yesterday. And he knows the ways that you're going to fall and fail in the next 24 hours too, in the upcoming 24 hours. Remind yourself that he is with you. He knows you fully and completely. He is fully and intimately acquainted with everything, uh, everything in you and everything about you. And you take a couple minutes just to remind yourself of, of that truth. And that's how you start your day. I promise you, if you start your day, that's it. Well, how long is that? That could take like less than five minutes if you wanted to. It could go a lot longer than that. But less than five minutes. If you start your day like that every single day, like you will live a radically different life from the fake joy-seeking world uh, people that you interact with uh, uh, every, every single day. Uh, it will set your life and your day on a, on a completely different trajectory. So... We can know his presence and experience his presence even now. All right, so we find joy in what God has done for us. We find joy in God's presence with us. Finally, we find joy. This is supposed to say number three. Uh, I forgot to change it during even between services, but that's okay. Uh, it's supposed to be the third, third point. Uh, we can find joy in God's joy over us. 
So look at, verse, uh, look at verse 17 with me. And in many ways, this verse, it's right in the middle of the passage, right in the middle of this section on joy and hope. It's the climactic center of the entire book of Zephaniah. That's all the intensity. Remember all the, the day of the Lord, judgment and wrath and doom and gloom? All of the intensity of emotion comes to its head right in this verse, uh, right here, as, uh, as we're described how God views us. So look at, let's look at verse 17 again. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will, qu- he will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. Did you hear that? Amid all the sin, all the suffering, all the self-destruction, all the idolatry and corruption, God's single-minded purpose has been to remove the consequence for sin to be with them again, and to delight in them, though they are undeserving. And this joy and happiness and pleasure in his people, it gushes out like a fire hose of affection. And did you catch the, if you're paying attention closely, you saw there a bit of contradiction uh, in this verse. Like, so, so verse, uh, the first line is, or the second, third line actually, uh, uh, of that verse is, um, he will be quiet in his love. And now some translations kind of vary in exactly how they render that phrase, but the idea in the original is that is God's peaceful, serene, quiet contentment and, and satisfaction. So it's the joy of holding a newborn baby for the first time, like uh, this, this speechless, speechless joy. But then the very next line is, he gets very noisy. He says, he will delight in you with singing. And this is the over-the-moon, raucous, like he's cheering on his favorite football team kind of joy. Okay? So which is it? Was God going to be loud or quiet? Well, it's kind of the point. Like the contradiction is kind of the point. God delights in his people to such an extent that as one, as, uh, one, one commentator, he put it this way, he says, uh, it takes the full range of emotional expression to convey God's feelings for us. And here's the point. The greatest form of joy, delight, pleasure and happiness that you and I will ever know will only come when we experience and are gripped by God's delight in us. This is the joy that God is obsessed with and committed to. So we we will only ever know the joy of verse 14 that he wants us to have, to sing loud, be, be joyous, celebrate from your hearts. We'll only know that joy of verse 14 until we know, firstly, God's joy God's joy in verse 17, that God sings over us with joy. And we know this on on a human level. Uh, Some of the greatest times of happiness in our lives come when we are delighted in by someone else. So what happens, just on a small scale, like what happens when you walk into a room and someone immediately smiles at you? What happens almost instinctively? Even if you're having a bad day, you smile back, right? Their joy in you, even if it's just fake polite joy, produces Joy in yourself, like their joy over you makes you happy, makes you joyful. Uh, this is why like, one, I'm becoming increasingly con- convicted as a father to, like, to uh, one, that one of my, the greatest gifts that I can give my kids is to delight in them. When they walk in the room, to smile, to be happy about them being, and even though I know they're only in the room because they want something from me or they're going to make me get out of the couch or whatever, like, but, to d- but to delight in them when they walk in the room. Uh, because that's the greatest gift of joy that I can give to them. If I want my kid to be happy, who doesn't want their kid to be happy? Then delight in them. Smile at them. And uh, so, so, in other words, like, God wants us uh, to be like a child who finds delight and happiness in playing with her father. 
God wants us to know that when he, like, like a fa father wrestling around on the floor, delighting or throwing the kid up in the air or watching, you know, giving, giving your kid a taste of chocolate ice cream for the first time, like God wants us to, wants us to know his smile over us. And in his delight over you, we find the greatest joy possible. This is God's chief end for you and me. This is the joy, this is the joy abounding destiny that God has been sovereignly working toward since the beginning of human history. And you ask, like, how could this be? How could it be that God, the holy, righteous judge of the universe, how could it be that he finds joy in me? He knows me. He knows what a mess up I am. He knows how incompetent, he knows how inconsistent, how undisciplined I am. He knows I'm not the parent I should be. He knows I'm not the child I should be. He knows I'm not the, the, the spouse I should be. I'm not the employee I should be. He knows I'm not the boss I should be. He knows, he knows better than me all my failures and flaws. So what delight could a holy creator of the universe possibly find in you? Well, two foundational answers to this. First, God delights in you strictly because he made you. Okay. God delights in you because you have been formed and fashioned by a good God in the image of a good God. And that's it. Like God delights in his creation. Secondly, though, and maybe even most profoundly, more profoundly, God delights in you because God delights in the one who took your place. God delights in you because God delights in the one who took your place. At the beginning of, of, of his ministry on earth, Jesus, remember the, the baby that became, God became flesh, he lived life, he started off his ministry, went into uh, the wilderness and was tempted, and then he came out of the wilderness after being tempted by Satan and, being, and withstanding temptation. He goes out and he's about to start his public ministry where he's teaching and preaching and performing miracles, but before he does that, he's baptized. Uh, he's baptized. And... Uh, as soon as he goes down into the water and then comes back up, listen, listen to what happened. Verse, uh, in Matthew chapter 3, this is what we're told. A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So here we find one human, one descendant of Adam, one offspring of Abraham, one child of, of Judah, who fulfilled the law in every way. He kept the covenant with Israel perfectly. He was in every way adequate, every way flawless. And God, and in him, God placed his love and affection and delight and pleasure. But this perfect object of God's joy became a man of sorrows. And the rest of his life that he would know was marked by continually downward path into rejection and death and suffering. For a time, he was robbed of all joy. Yet because of the joy set before him, Jesus took on utter sadness. It was God himself, the joyful, delighting uh, creator, uh, a good and creative creator of the universe, this God became acquainted with inexpressible sorrow and anger, anguish. But then he rose from the dead and he was raised up to the right hand of the Father and he joyfully and triumphantly was welcomed in 
to the throne of heaven. And in defeating sin and sorrow and suffering, Jesus secured for us the pleasure of God himself. The perfect object of the Father's joy and delight and pleasure that we read about in Matthew 3, he became a man of sorrows so that we might enjoy God's joy over us. And the, the, the sorrow and suffering and anguish that we rightfully incurred onto ourselves was placed on the shoulders of Jesus. And in return, we get the delight and affection and approval and joy of God, that God had in his only true, faithful, perfect, delightful son. In Jesus, you are God's beloved child. In Jesus, because, simply because of placing your identity in Christ and putting your trust in Jesus, you can take the Father's words over Jesus here in Matthew chapter 3 as God's words over you personally, yourself. You are God's beloved child. You are the one in whom the Father has delight because everything that was good about Jesus has been credited to your account. What was true of Jesus is true of you. There is no, uh, he withholds no affection from you. There is no disappointment or disapproval. He does not hold you at a distance until you impress him thoroughly enough. His happiness in you is full and glorious, warm and complete. But that's because his happiness in you is his happiness in Jesus. And my prayer for you, for you this morning, for each one of us this morning, is that you would know this. Like there's some of you in, in this room who's like, this, this message lands just in, in no way is relating to you at all. Like, like this, it's, not, it's not, not appealing, not anything that you've ever sought after, not anything that, that, that you've wanted. My, my, my worry uh, is that our, that our hearts have become so, so dull to the because, of, because in our perceptions, like it's, there, it is impossible uh, that, that anyone could ever uh, love us and find delight and affection in us like this. So my prayer is that God would soften our hearts to the reality of this. But if you long for greater joy, if you long for peace, if you long for contentment and happiness, uh, whether you call yourself a, a, a Christian or whether you would never call yourself a Christian, if, 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 if you want more of that, if you want more happiness and delight and joy and satisfaction, and you think there is even a minuscule chance of you finding this in Jesus, like, do not leave here today without talking to somebody. I would love, don't leave here without talking to me. Don't leave here without, you can see the faces of the elders on the, on the, on the board in the back. Don't leave here without talking to them. If you came here with a friend, like, talk to a friend, and they will probably, talk to that friend, they probably know someone that, they could, that you could talk to. Like, it's on you. If, you. if you want to find the happiness and the peace and the delight that you were made for, it's on you. Don't leave here today without, without talking to somebody about that. Okay? That's my prayer for us, for each one of us. So let me pray for us. Father, you're good. You're better than, uh, than we know. You're better than we can articulate. You're better than we can imagine. So teach us to rest and delight in your goodness. Uh, that more than the false sources of joy that we could, we could turn to you, your joy offers us something far better. Now, where, we're, where we're weak and we're tired, where we, uh, where we are uh, burdened by, sh- by, the, by the shameful belief that no one ever could delight in us. Would you wreck our, our, the, the, the arrogance? Would you wreck the hopelessness? 
that causes us to believe that and, and allow us in your tenderness to know your, to know your delight in us. Where we are holding you at a distance, Father, would you break down walls and allow us to know the joy of life close and intimate with you. Where, where we feel like you are holding us at a distance, would you dispel the false gospels that tell us that there's something we have to do to clean ourselves up, there's something we have to bring to the table, there's something we have to contribute to this. Would you teach us to remember that you find delight in us because of the one who took our place, not because of what we do. Would that gospel seep into our hearts deeply? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.